is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast. Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. So we're continuing our in-depth look into Iran, get a proper understanding of the country, analyzing its internal workings and politics and recent history uh, in order to really sort of evaluate where it's at, where it's headed, the threat it poses to the United States and the West. So I'm joined here today by Alex Vatonka. He is a senior fellow and director of the Iran program at the Middle East Institute. He has a new book out, The Battle of the Ayatollahs in Iran. So first off, Alex, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. Great to be with you. Absolutely. Uh, So I was thinking we could start off here. The, in order to evaluate Iran determined how to best deal with this regime, what's likely to do. You have to understand the regime's goals, objectives, particularly with respect to the West and the United States. And in order to determine that, I think your book spells out one of the ways to really understand this, this regime is by looking at, in particular, the factional politics and representative of that, people like Ali Khamenei, who's the Ayatollah right now, the second Ayatollah of the Islamic Republic, and another individual named Rafsanjani. And so some people I'm sure have heard about the Ayatollah of Iran, Khamenei, uh, similar, similar sounding name to Khomeini, although there's, there's no relation there, um, but they don't know much about him. Rafsanjani, I'm sure very few people outside of Iran and who follow Iranian politics actually know who that is. Um, so tell us about these two individuals, how, what role they've played in the Islamic theocratic regime in Iran, mm-hmm. and how, how their sort of ideological frameworks have helped shape it and, and maybe continue to shape it. Right. Well, well thank you. Look, I mean, uh, in that book, uh, The Battle of the Ayatollahs, which looks at the evolution of Iranian foreign policy since 1979, I want to tell a story. And this book is about telling the story of how Iranian foreign policy unfolded since 79 and how it sort of evolved in the last 42 years. But I do so by following in the footsteps of two individuals who I think are critical for anyone who understands the evolution of the Islamic Republic. One is uh, the current Iranian Supreme Leader, as you mentioned, uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who has been the Supreme Leader, the unelected Supreme Leader of this political system since 1989. And the guy who made him Supreme Leader back in 1989, his once friend uh, to be rival, a man by the name of Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani, who died in 2017, but his political network is still somewhat alive, although they are 
probably never been this marginalized before. So the, the book is really looking at these two guys and, and look at it from when they met in the 1960s. It all don't touch much, talk much about the 1960s. I wanted to, to have a book that's relevant to today because Iran is relevant today in, in late 2021. There are so many issues that are of concern to policymakers in Washington in places like you know, uh, London, Paris, Berlin, Jerusalem, Riyadh, Abu Dhabi, even Moscow and Beijing want to know what's going on in Tehran. So I decided, and there are so many smart, talented Iranian academics in the United States and outside of Iran and in Iran, but although the ones in Iran, their hands are tight, they can't write freely compared to those of us who are outside. So I wanted to tell a story. I wanted to sort of say to a, an American audience, to Western audience who are interested in Iran, but don't necessarily have the background, don't want to look at it from an academic approach, but I wanted to tell the story through being the, by being a fly on the wall. So I kind of, you know, follow these two guys for, for 42 years and all the various turns and twists in that relationship and, and, and sort of tell the story by focusing on those moments where their partnership or their rivalry had an impact on Iranian foreign policy and on American-Iranian relations. For example, the Iran-Contra affair. What was the role of Khamenei in that? What was the role of Rafsanjani in that? And, and so forth. With respect to, uh, so let, let's start off with uh, Khamenei. He's the supreme leader. Does he have any check on his power? Well, actually, first off, what's his, what's his ideological framework from, from your research and analysis of him? You know, I think he was a, a typical uh, fusion of, of militant Islamism uh, and a big dose of the then leftism that was pervasive during the Cold War. So, you know, it was, he, was a, he was an individual who came from very humble backgrounds. I mean, his family was pretty poor. He comes from the city of Mashhad, one of the second largest city in Iran on the border with Afghanistan. It's a holy city of sorts. I mean, he's got some important connections to Shia Islam. There's a famous Imam Reza shrine there. He comes from a poor background. His father was a cleric, but not a, you know, a wealthy individual by any means. Um, so I think that humble uh, upbringing uh, and the limited options in life in terms of where he, he could go. I mean, his father was a, a, a cleric. He chose to be a cleric, but he could easily become a atheist. He could easily become a communist. So many people from that generation, from that background, went a whole different direction. They gave up on on, on God entirely and, and looked to, to communism. Folks like Khamenei chose somewhere in the middle of the road, if you will. They wanted to, they couldn't, they wouldn't ab abandon Islam, uh, but yet they could see the attractions of, of communism and, and the sort of leftism uh, that was, as I said, so pervasive back in the, the formative year of, of Khamenei, 50s, 60s, and 70s. But then he gets to be a powerful individual after the revolution of 79. And then his ideology is above all shaped by his desire to to be someone who matters, to be a politically significant individual. So power becomes the driving force. And you see that in my book. You know, for example, Khamenei uh, didn't have a position when those militant students, uh, and this week is the anniversary of taking over the US embassy in Tehran, happened 4th of November, 1979. Um, you know, his position was, what happened? Why did these radical students take over the US embassy in Tehran? It takes a while for him and Rafsanjani, by the way, to realize actually 
this politically makes a lot of sense for us in terms of our power struggle in Tehran against the leftists. So they wanted to steal that anti-Americanism that existed in the society by and large. And Khamenei chooses to support the embassy takeover, but only gradually, not initially, because he wasn't ideologically looking for a fight with the United States as much as others were, but it made sense. It was an expedient thing to do politically. He then becomes a supporter of it. And I think that's the beginning of his, this, what I would describe a hole that he's keep digging in, this anti-Americanism. It, it makes perfect sense from his domestic political point of view and in terms of hanging on to power, but his anti-Americanism has cost Iran, the nation of Iran, so dearly for so long. And every, pretty much every Iranian you, you speak to recognizes this fact that anti-Americanism is, is such a costly um, project, but, but Khamenei has invested in as long as he has. And I suspect he'll stay, stick to the, to the anti-Americanism to the day he dies. But how he got there is actually a very interesting story. And, and I try again to, to sort of tell at least part of that in this book. Mm-hmm. Before we get to that, I want to first sort of diagnose the situation uh, with him in his current position. Is there any check to his power? Or is it just what he says goes? Right. So number one, for your audience, the Islamic Republic of Iran is the world's first modern theocracy. What is a theocracy? Well, basically, you're saying that God has your back and you're doing God's bidding on this earth of ours. And you don't necessarily need to, to have the voters to, to sort of uh, give the green light. That's what a theocracy is. I mean, extreme version of a theocracy is next door in, in, um, in Taliban-run Afghanistan mm-hmm. today. That's also a theocracy. You could say ISIS, uh, you know, with Abu Bakr right. uh, Baghdadi was a version of a, of, of, of a theocracy. The, the, the most wise religious man on the top of the pyramid, whatever he says, is, uh, is law of the land. In the case of Iran, and again, it's a complicated and, and historically interesting, but complicated uh, way how it came about, but it's a fusion of a Republican model where they have elections and uh, the unelected part that are not elected by the people and yet actually have the real power. Mm-hmm. And that's why so many of us don't take Iranian elections seriously because we say, well, these are all kind of, this is a show, this is political theater. If somebody genuinely wanted to come in and, and run in an election, win in that election and shake things up in Iran, well, they're not gonna be allowed to do that because the system will prevent you from doing that. Uh, I mean, we just had three months ago, a new Iranian president arrive, Ibrahim Raisi. Does he actually have any power? Was he actually voted by the Iranian people? Well, I mean, if you ask me, I would say, well, he was clearly given the presidency on a silver platter. So that was the theocracy part I wanna put out. But to your specific question about whether there is any oversight on, on Khamenei, in this convoluted Iranian political system, there is a body called Assembly of Experts. These are the mo- allegedly the most senior learned clerics from Shia Islam, from 12 or Jafari Shia Islam. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on that. But, you know, these are supposed to be and, you know, you have similar things in other religions. Catholic Church has a, a body that chooses the next pope. So in the case of the assembly of experts in Iran, they actually constitutionally have the power to fire the sitting supreme leader. They can turn around tomorrow, have a vote and say, sir, you just don't do a good enough job. We will let you go. Uh, Are they going to do that? No, because this is how the system sort of um, is stacked up against representation. 
In order to sit in the assembly of experts, you have to first be approved by council called the guardian council, made up of two individuals who, surprise, surprise, are not elected by the people, but are appointed by the supreme leader. So Khamenei, the sitting supreme leader, controls essentially who sits in the assembly of experts who then have the right to oversee him. Right, right. You can see where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. The people in the assembly of experts are not going to be able to challenge him because they owe their jobs to him. What do you think his goals are in terms of what he wants for Iran? Do you think that – so obviously he's willing to allow the economic infrastructure of the entire – country to basically collapse under sanctions uh, all this is at least my assessment correct me if i'm wrong um all in the name of you know wider held uh, deeper held convictions in terms of religious ideology and islam um right do you do you think that you know, i remember this Khomeini quote where he where people were complaining about the economy he said uh economics is for donkeys right uh so is that the kind of kind of <laughs> Is that kind of like the mentality is just like uh, not even caring about pragmatic economic issues um, and, and having that being so subservient to a radical form of, of Islam? Like, what do you think he actually wants for other than staying in power for Iran? Is it to spread Islam around the world? Is it uh, to build up? The, you know, it's obviously not to build the country, but what is it exactly? Right. Well, it's a great question. I think if you if I was. Um, you know, well, if Khamenei was me right now, you asked him that question, I'm sure he'll give you an answer. Um, I'm not sure if that would be a convincing answer. I mean, look, um, it's been a system that was created back in 1979, and they have tried to maneuver their way forward. The most important thing is to stay in power. You know, so when they were uh, at times over the last 42 years threatened by the popular, uh, you know, anger, they would adjust their policies. I mean, the regime as a whole does careful cost-benefit analysis in anything they do. I mean, let me give you one big example, Iran-Iraq war. It started in 1980, and it was supposed to go on forever and ever. And one of the slogans, and those of us who grew up in the public school system in Iran remember the slogans we were forced to say uh, before class every morning, you know, neither West nor East, but we will go our own separate way. I translated it from Persian to English, but roughly it meant we're not going to belong to the Western-led block. We're not going to be with the Soviets. We're going to go our own separate way. On the Iran-Iraq war, the promise was all the way to Baghdad, defeat Saddam Hussein, and then continue going to, the slogan said, Jerusalem, to free uh, Jerusalem from the Israelis. Now, what happened in 1988, eight years into the war? They had a good look, how many soldiers they had, how many volunteers they had, how many planes they had that were still flying, their tanks, and they decided we can't do this. A decision was made to uh, seek peace with Saddam without even getting to kill Saddam, which had been the intention. Uh, so my point is, we're talking about the nuclear issue today. You know, the idea that uh, Iran will continue the nuclear program at any cost, I don't think that's true. Hmm. Uh, they have clearly been willing to pay a very heavy price for it. Uh, how much more will they be willing to pay in terms of price? Well, I don't think they will go that far as to jeopardize their grip on power. Let me put it that way. Has anybody, whether the Biden administration, the Trump administration, uh, and the ones before, Obama, George W. Bush, anyone before, have they been able to convince them that if they didn't make con uh, concessions on the nuclear program, that the regime change uh, policy would become a realistic one from Washington's point of view. Uh, 
I don't think the Iranians were ever convinced that that would happen. Therefore, they've continued the nuclear program more or less the way they, they wanted to, more or less the way they wanted mm -hmm. to. So I, I, I'm, I'm trying to get to the point, because you asked the question, what do they want? And you asked the question, what does Khamenei want? Does he want to export the revolution and so on? It's not really about what he wants. It's about what can he get away with without risking grip uh, on power in Tehran. Because, you know, Khamenei doesn't want to be the top man in Damascus or in Riyadh or anywhere else if he can't be the top man in Tehran. Mm -hmm. That's a really important point. And th that limits his options. If he is the ruling uh, individual in Tehran the way he is today, and he can get away with sort of exporting this version of Islam to other parts of the region, then he might give it a go. And to some extent, they are doing that today. I mean, they're trying their hands to export the revolution. They don't say they are, but they are, but quietly, um, carefully, and, and I would say cautiously in places like Iraq and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but if you give them too much pushback, I mean, let's take Syria. The Israelis keep hitting them in Syria. Mm -hmm. This means Iran has to be careful because if they go all out, they don't want to open confrontation with the Israelis or the Americans or for that matter, anyone in the region. So going back to my point, the cost benefit analysis is something we need to keep in mind. This is not a suicidal regime. You can pressure them and by pressure, they would adjust their policies because they above all want to hang on to power in Iran. They're not in a good position in terms of their public sentiment of the Iranian people. If you had a free vote tomorrow in the Islamic Republic, ask Iranians, do you want the Islamic Republic to stay in power? Right, I don't know if anybody can tell you a scientific answer, but I'm pretty sure having done this for 22 years now, a clear majority would say, thank you very much, but no thanks. We've had enough of the Islamic Republic. So when you think about it, when your people are so upset about how you've behaved in terms of domestic politics and what you're doing in your foreign policy, their options in terms of how wild they can be in their foreign policy choices actually is, is more limited than a lot of people think. And that's a strength for the United States and allies mm -hmm. to also think about what their weaknesses are. What is Khamenei fearful about? Yes, he might want to export the revolution, but how is he willing to, or how much is he willing to risk his grip on power in Tehran doing so? Do you, do, so you actually think um, that, so there's been many attempts at, uh, protests and people on the streets and a lot of momentum at various times throughout the last 20 years, probably even longer than that, uh, where you, you, you could see, okay, maybe, maybe it'll crack this time around, right? Maybe, maybe this will be sort of that Berlin wall mo uh, moment. Uh, and it hasn't happened. And they've been, they've been able to basically uh, push that down. So do you, do you think that they, see, to me, I feel like, would they not just be extremely confident in their own power because nothing has been able to topple them so far? Uh, you know, going back to the uh, Iran-Iraq war, that that's actually a really interesting war that is very, very um, sort of uh, esoteric. A lot of people in the West do not actually know. I mean, millions of people died in this war. And Iran, <laughs> Iran was basically alone, as, as you alluded to, is like Iraq was supported basically by the West. Um, I think even the Soviet Union was against Iran. So it's like basically almost every power in the world was on the uh, Iraqi side. And Iran basically had no allies. And still today, they barely have allies and they still survived it. So do you, do you not sense that they have this um, maybe overconfidence, uh, particularly mixed in with their religious nature that, you know, they, God is, you know, Allah is protecting them and that they'll, they'll succeed. And 
because I'm trying to understand what could possibly make them say, oh, we need to be careful about this nuclear program. I feel like maybe their, their recent history might give them the indication that they're uh, powerful enough to withstand any threats. And therefore, why not just pursue nuclear all the way? Who's going to stop us? Right. I mean, we can talk about the nuclear issue, its nature separately, but let me go back to the larger theme you raised in terms of the issue of confidence. Why are there so confidence? They can do whatever they want and, and they won't be toppled. Look, as you pointed out, since 1979, the Iranian people have repeatedly tried to come out and at least let it be known that they don't like the way things are running in Iran. This is not a secret. Mm -hmm. What we've seen in recent years is an intensification of this anger and more uh, readiness uh, by pockets of the Iranian population that before didn't really get involved politically, but now increasingly can, cannot afford not to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the old cliche is that political revolutions in Iran or, you know, the pet projects of the middle class in the more wealthy parts of North Tehran, that the rest of society in Iran really couldn't care less. They just want to live their lives even if they don't like the Ayatollahs, they just want to be left alone so they can look after their families. That might have been true for the longest of time, but I can tell you that's not true anymore because there's a direct relationship between what you do in the realm of foreign policy and how people's lives are being impacted in Iran in terms of what they can afford to buy, to feed their family, clothes they can buy, things they can do in terms of, you know, um, basic things we all do and take for granted, certainly in the United States. So more and more Iranians are falling to poverty. I mean, the middle class has been decimated. Right. Uh, and some of the figures the Iranian officials themselves are putting out there are staggering. I mean, I, look, I looked at a number just a few days ago that talked about if they don't make changes the way they spend money, because their revenues drop massively thanks to U.S. sanctions, the revenues drop massively. They keep having to spend money on things like pensions and welfare, uh, cash handouts. They don't have the money. So one estimate says in three years' time, they might be bankrupt. The government of Iran might be bankrupt. That might be an exaggeration. I don't I, I can't really speak to it, but there is no doubt in my mind that the economy is in a terrible shape, which takes us back to your question. If the economy is in terrible shape, if we do have a track record of people coming down the streets and protesting, why is Khamenei so confident? Well, one reason he's confident, he's spent the last 30 plus years uh, building up a pretty formidable military intelligence security apparatus. Uh, it's one of the best ones out there. They know how to come out and crack down. They're not seeking your support. They will let you know that if you don't go home, bad things will happen to you. And they made that message repeatedly. Many, many, many people have in recent years been detained, disappeared, killed. Uh, prisons are, uh, I mean, they are pretty full in Iran. So that's how they stay in power, suppression. It's not, they're not unfortunately looking for middle ground or, or, or cutting uh, you know, a deal with the people that they're ruling over. They're saying it's our way or the highway. Anybody who stands up to them is called a, a traitor, an agent of Western imperialist powers and all the rest of it. I'm sure you've heard it all. And so with respect to the, um, their, their efforts at suppression, and I want to bring up the point you just made. So you think that maybe they're they're obviously, like we said, confident that they can uh, keep things keep things uh, from being too volatile. They can always you know send out the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and quell a lot of these mm -hmm. protests or revolutions um, or calls for revolution. But maybe the thing that that might be changing their calculus in terms of their 
their feelings of, of being confident in their position is that for the first time, it appears recently, not only are the middle class and the young and the educated resentful of this regime and want to, want to topple it, but now you're starting to see um, indications that the poor uh, you know, the, the ones who don't live in Tehran, the ones who live in the smaller villages, they're also being very frustrated. These are traditionally more uh, Islamic communities. So, so that they're more of a constituency that, that sympathizes with the theocracy. And now even they're getting pissed off and, and maybe that's changing their calculus and they have to be a little bit more cautious. Is that what you think? Well, I, the, the former part of what you said in terms of the changing dynamic society for sure is happening with the younger demographic, the ones who live I mean, the ones who were around in 1979 might have invested in this revolution, might still some of them be on the fence to this day, but surely their children have given up a long time ago. Because you know, these are the guys who are coming out of the school system looking for jobs. There are no jobs. They can't afford housing. They can't afford the basics in life. So they're very upset. And in fact, some of the reasons why the poor got behind the revolution in 19, late 70s that led to the, the fall of the, the, the monarchy in 79, some of those factors are now evident. They, they're coming together. And, you know, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei and the Ayatollahs, the clerics, the system as it is, could make concessions, but they're so stubborn. They don't want to really have a dialogue with their own people. So it's my way or the highway across the board. It's on foreign policy. It's our way or the highway. So, for example, to give you a specific, Iranian people, by and large, don't like what the regime, the, the authorities in Tehran are doing in the region. They don't understand the investments in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. They don't understand the animosity towards Israel or the Gulf states. They don't get it. It's not Iranian national interest, right? So they don't get it. And they say, hang on a minute. Even if we fix the nuclear issue, even if tomorrow we have a deal with the Americans, we're still going to be isolated because the rest of the neighborhood doesn't like what we're doing in the region. So, you know, I would have thought if you are looking to your population, you say, we might have to either tell them why we're doing things the way we are in foreign policy, and they're not telling them that, or you just change course, and they're not doing that either. And I just don't think staying where they are and just keep being on this path is an option, but that's what they think they it's their option. So they're not making concessions on the home front. I mean, silly things like women are not allowed to go to stadiums in Iran. The country in the Middle East where women had the greatest political and social rights. I mean, women in Iran got the right to vote 10 years before Swiss women did in the early 60s. So this isn't exactly a backward country when it comes to the issue of women's. Iranian women were involved in the constitutional revolution of 1906, over 100 years ago. And today they're being told they can't go to stadiums to watch men play soccer. So this is an Iranian regime that either doesn't get it or refuses to understand that the society they're ruling over, it's in a different space than they are. It's, you know, I, I hate to make comparisons, but we see it next door in Afghanistan, which is a very different country than Iran, uh, has much bigger problems than Iran. And yet you see similarities. The Taliban walk in, it's their way or the highway. See how they're treating people. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? In Iran, they might look more modern and all the rest of it, but it's the same mentality. Mm -hmm. The Ayatollahs knows best. And the, this is basically been what Iran has, I think, suffered from, this detachment by the ruling elite, increasingly a small ruling elite. Because remember, even the guy who I talk about quite a bit in my book, Rafson Johnny, he was a revolutionary in 1979. He was at the heart of bringing the Shah down. In 1989, he's at the heart of the attempt to put Khamenei in place as Supreme Leader. By the end of his life, he says, you know what? We messed up. He regretted it. He hated Iran being isolated, but it was too late. He'd been marginalized. And one big mistake he made, a lot of people from who 
opposed the system made is they thought they could have a dialogue with the so-called hardliners. Guess what? Mm. These guys, the hardliners, they have the guns. And because they have the guns, they're not in a mood to, to have a dialogue. It's, as I said, it's their stubborn my way or the highway approach, which they think it's something that's going to work for them, but I'm pretty sure it would fail in the long term. What are the demographics like in Iran? I remember reading something like uh, the majority are under 35, 40. Do you know the number? Um, I mean, look, it's a country of 85 million people. Mm -hmm. It's still a, a younger side. I think um, I'm not sure how many under age of 30, but it would be a majority. Mm, uh, pretty okay. sure of that. Although, having said that, it's fast graying nation. Mm. So people have stopped having children. I mean, these mm. are official Iranian figures. Right, right. I think the last figure I saw was in 1986, an Iranian woman on average would have something like six children. Wow. Today, that number's dropped to 1.6, which wow. is less than most of Europe. So, most okay. of Europe. I mean, there are at the Japanese standards in terms mm. of how bad the population is going to shrink. It's not going to happen overnight, though there's a bulge, but it will hit them hard because the, the young are not having, they're not having marriages, they're not having right. kids. Immigration, brain drain is a huge issue. Right. People mm -hmm. are leaving the country. You know, in 1979, the Iranian diaspora was tiny. Iranians, by and large, did not leave their country, mm -hmm. right? Today, you got six, seven, some people say eight million strong Iranian diaspora around the world. So mm -hmm. ask yourself a very simple question. Why did all these people leave if things are so great? Well, that's the answer. Things are not so great. Mm -hmm. And people continue to leave. And this is another tragedy for a country that should be a, among the 20th largest economies mm -hmm. in the world. It's got the minerals, the resources, the human capital, industrial base, educated population, huge market, as I said, of 85 million. This could be the Germany of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And where are they today instead? The most sanctioned country in the history of man. It's a tragedy. With insane hyperinflation, and I, I see there's, there's food shortages, even, even predating COVID, now it's gotten worse. People can't get meats, people can't get all sorts of products in order to sustain themselves. Um, middle class is appearing. Right, right. So, you know, I'm sure, Iran, you can buy meat, you can buy all that, but the right. question is, can you afford it? Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. not that it's not there, it's there, but people can't afford it. Inflation of on just under 50%, that's, that yeah. means your money loses value literally on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so we have a, we have a sort of youngish population, I guess, basically around my age, the, in the 30s, um, who are very unhappy. They see their standard of living just constantly uh, regressing. Um, a lot of the brain drains happening. So a lot of the, the people who are scientists and doctors and engineers are going to Germany and the United States and Canada, um, creating even more volatile situation there. Um, and then you, you have a intransigent uh, monarchy, uh, well, not monarchy, but theocracy uh, in control who just won't change path. <laughs> with regards to the the other wing of of the revolution revolutionary council or revolutionary regime as you mentioned this is represented by this rough sanjani individual um that faction is slowly dying so now you're just getting flat out extreme hardliners uh whereas how would you describe the 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 rap sanjani factions of the world they were like they were still pro um Islam being supreme in the country and spreading it, but maybe they, they were also in favor of economic reforms or what's, what's the distinction there? 
So if you actually want to kind of get a good sense of the duality of the Islamic Republic, and you want to go back to 1979, you can imagine a situation where you have two big blocks that contributed to, to the sort of the makeup of the first couple of governments that were born after 79. Who joined this government? You had a lot of people um, who came from the very poor backgrounds. They came from the countryside, the urban poor and so forth. Mm -hmm. And they were just happy to be given a chance to have a better life. And if it meant to grow a beard and subscribe to Khomeinism, then so be it. I mean, socioeconomically for a lot of these people, it was just a great opportunity to pass. Then you had a lot of others who joined and they came from middle class, some even upper middle class. They were not poor. They didn't join because of poverty or because of lack of option. In fact, many people uh, joined initial governments of, of Khomeini leaving great university uh, you know, uh, positions and, and some of them students in the United States and Western Europe because they had this idealism that you know, this is an opportunity to bring about genuine democracy to Iran. So you have these two groups. Can I stop you there for a second? Why would they think yeah. that they would bring genuine democracy by supporting Khomeini over and toppling the Shah? I mean, look, uh, there's a lot of good things that one can sit here and say about the former Shah of Iran, the king of Iran, but he was not a Democrat. I mean, mm -hmm. democracy didn't exist in Iran before 1979. Mm -hmm. uh, and as much as I, I respect so much good that the Shah and his father did for Iran, they weren't Democrats per se. I mean, there were no free elections in Iran right. before 1979. So there are these idealists that basically are fooled by Khamenei, I'm, I'm sorry, by Khomeini's message, the guy who was there before Khamenei, mm -hmm. by Khomeini's message that, look, we're going to have democracy. He famously mm -hmm. said when he was in exile in Paris, we are going to have democracy in Iran when we take over the way you have democracy here in France. Mm -hmm. It all turned out to be pack of lies because he had no intention to deliver on that promise. But nonetheless, enough people believed it. They thought this is their chance to bring about democracy to Iran, and they joined Khomeini's revolution. A lot of them, if they weren't exiled quickly, ended up in jail or sidelined, some of them actually executed. Mm -hmm. The ones who stayed in Khomeini's revolution and became members of you know, the government, because you asked me about Rafsanjani, these are the people who over the years then sort of coalesce around Rafsanjani. Mm -hmm. And again, we talked about the Iran-Iraq war and the isolation that Iran was under. As you pointed out, during the Iran-Iraq war, Iran is arguably the only country, and the Iran-Iraq war is the only country during the history of the Cold War, where two superpowers, mm -hmm. both are the same of one right. of the two warring parties. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Because the Ayatollahs had upset everybody. They managed right. to get the Americans and the Soviets to agree that they, were, <laughs> they should not win in that war. So that isolation, that war experience taught a lesson to what I would call today the moderates, right? You know, people don't like the word moderate because it's something essentially positive, pragmatic. You ch choose the label you like. Mm -hmm. They were different, the hardliners, the crazies that I like to call. Mm -hmm. and, and they wanted to sort of make a point. Look, they, Iran is not North Korea. Iran can live as an isolated island. Iran has always been part of the world. There's always been right there, a, a bridge between Europe and in South Asia, East Asia, hard in the Middle East, the idea that we're going to you know, put a big wall around us and ignore the rest of the world, just a non-starter. We need to trade, we need to have relations, our economy, the well-being of our people depend on it. And by the way, if you're isolated, that means you're weak. Look what happened during the Iran-Iraq war. We couldn't even get spare parts for our F-4s, F-5s, F-14s, and look what that did for our war performance. That's their message. The other guys, the poor, who had joined Khomeini's, uh, the ones that Qasem Soleimani. Everybody knows the name Qasem Soleimani. I mean, Qasem Soleimani is a 
very archetypical figure from the Revolutionary Guards, where he came from, the absolute poverty he came from, and how far he was able to rise through the ranks. They don't have the, um, what's the word, the sort of, uh, you know, luxury of, of, of wanting to sort of be part of the world, which means Iran uh, perhaps even normalizing relations with the United States because they see a relationship between Iran as a more normal state and having relations with the Western world that is more or less healthy mm-hmm. and what it would do to their power base in Iran and how much power they have. So they put their own political interests first, mm-hmm. by and large, because, you know, an isolated Iran, a sanctioned Iran is not necessarily the worst of things from their perspective because they're still right. in power. Right. I mean, I should go on and on, but that's basically, and final point I make, these moderates, the educated ones for a long time were the hope that Iran could reform itself into something different and more benign that the world could learn to live with. Well, they're increasingly, I would say, out of of any position of power. Mm -hmm. So with the death of Rafsanjani, they have become even weaker. They don't have anybody to protect them anymore. Rafsanjani was the, you know, protecting figure of that camp, but he's gone. Hassan Rouhani, the last president, was supposed to take over after Rafsanjani. I don't think he's going to be able to fill the big shoes that Rafsanjani left behind. So you now have the hardliners in charge of everything. And the question for them is, how far are they going to be pushing their own people? Mm -hmm. And how many risks are they going to take in the realm of foreign policy? Because they have brought the country very close, I would say, to to the brink of something that looks like a major conflict. Would you say it's probably the closest they've been in terms of their... um their, their uh, potential to lose grip of control? No, I can't go there. Mm-hmm. I don't know about their ability mm-hmm. to, because look, what they have proven again and again mm-hmm. is a willingness and ability to crack down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they could stay in power by killing one individual or five individuals, they'll do it. But we also know if they have to kill a thousand, they probably will that, do that too. Right, and right, nobody's right. really tested them. I mean, the Shah of Iran in 79 could have killed thousands mm-hmm. and tens of thousands right, right. still in power. He said, I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm not yeah. gonna kill this. Is what We don't know what Khamenei will say. If he's mm-hmm. gonna say, if people came out, kill them all, or is he going to say, you know what, we tried, failed. But he, unlike the Shah, Khamenei has nowhere to go. And I think this is a key point. Right, right, right. Shah could pack up and go somewhere. The world, well, the world didn't turn out to be that kind to right. him and wouldn't receive him. Uh, but these guys have nowhere to They're go. And that's else. another factor. That's true. I mean, even, even a place like, uh, going back to isolation, like Saudi Arabia probably hates Iran even more than America does. I mean, There's if that's even possible, right? And all, as does Israel. I mean, they literally have... Um, you know, pissed off the entire world. And there's, (laughs) it's one of the few things that, you know, as we've seen with with places like Israel and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, building this coalition largely due to the fact that they all equally hate Iran and see them as a threat. So they're, they're that dangerous that they've actually created a a coalition, which actually, you know, uh, looks like it's going to be a good thing for the world, at least. Um, With respect, so with respect to the the nuclear program, uh, the Iran deal under Obama uh, seemed to be, and I think it's it's been proven to be, based on naivete and wouldn't actually make a, a dent in um, changing their intentions in order to build a nuclear program. I mean, you even had, uh, I forgot, what, what was his name? Giovanni, uh, right? The uh, former equi- uh, equivalent of Secretary of State. What was his name? 
Javon Zarif. Javon Zarif, right? And yeah. he was calling the hot mic. What was it like last less than a year ago? Basically saying every time I'd negotiate with the Americans, the hardliners would do something behind my back, and then the Soleimani's of the world to to make the negotiations basically end. So we weren't even negotiating with a real party in a sense, um, because we were negotiating with people who didn't have power to negotiate. Um, and on top of that, you know, the, you couldn't inspect certain sites for for nuclear enrichment they got to dictate where you can go and stuff. So I think it was a joke of a deal. Um, do you think that anything can be done diplomatically to curtail their nuclear ambitions or their nuclear program? Do you, do you think that um, short of actual military conflict or targeting of, you know, in a, in a violent kind of way, certain, um, you know, making it basically really tough from them from a military standpoint, is, is there a diplomatic angle that you, you see as plausible to stopping their nuclear program or nuclear ambitions? Right. Well, Ashton, you threw up a lot of questions there. So I, I, I'm going to probably struggle to sort of give you one answer, but I'll try. Look, let me go back to the Obama decision of 2015 to sign a deal with him. And I know people are divided on this issue. Is it good or bad? End of the day, President Obama at the time decided there are lots of issues that I don't like about what Iran is doing. But there's one thing that I really fear more than anything else, and it's that ticking nuclear clock. And that's the one I care about stopping. If I stop it for five years, 10 years, 15 years, that's good enough. It's better than nothing. And I think, you know, you have to give the man credit for that. You know, would we want ideally that Iran gives out its nuclear program or at least provides assurances that are much better than the ones given during 2015? Yes, of course. But it wasn't about what you could get uh, from Iran. It's about, you know, it was about what kind of realistic compromise would work for both sides. Because the U.S. had tried the other options of, of you know, just pressure and, and no compromise talk. And that didn't work. That's why we got, I mean, people forget uh, the, the compromise of 2015, 2015, six years ago. I mean, you had back and forth in the nuclear issue going back to the mid 1990s. So it had been 20 years of back and forth and little progress while the Iranian nuclear program expanded that got President Obama to say, okay, we just can't afford another 20 years of doing nothing. So now, as I said, it wasn't perfect, but that's what he did. I think a bigger, uh, I mean, I would say the bigger blame here goes to Iran uh, than Obama because they could have looked at Obama as an American president who genuinely wanted to deal with them, who genuinely was willing to compromise with them. And they could have made adjustments to their policies elsewhere outside the nuclear field to create confidence with Washington, with at least the Obama administration. They didn't. For example, Iran made no changes to its policies in places like Syria, Iraq. Right. And there's no, mm -hmm. So that's why people say, well, hang on a minute. Mm -hmm. um, this deal was too limited because our concerns with Iran are not just on the nuclear issues, also about what a nuclear armed Iran or nuclear threshold Iran mm -hmm. uh, would be able to do in the region if right. we don't stop it. So I, I would, I, you know, it's not defending anyone, but I just think it's extremely important to remember what circumstances Obama had to play with. And we know what happened with the maximum pressure campaign. You know, that was the alternative way of dealing with Iran, just sanctions, and that didn't work. Mm -hmm. So they went from 3.65% of enriched uranium to 60% today, after all the sanctions the world were put, put on them. Nobody, and this is the last thing I say, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but nobody right now in the United States seriously thinks military strikes on Iran is on the cards. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
it, it might be limited strikes in a number of sites, but it's not going to stop the program because right. this is not the Libyan program. This is not the Syrian program, the Egyptian program, or the Iraqi program of past decades. This is an indigenous program. They have the scientists, they have the industrial base, they have many sites. There is no one military campaign that can stop it. You could invade Iran the way U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, but good luck with that in oh, Washington, yeah, D.C. Yeah. So. That's, yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I, I, I would say with... Um, the reason why I take real issue with the Obama's attempts is because it, it seems, even from the outset, very clear that uh, the hardliners were the power players all along, and that you really couldn't trust these people with their word. And it, it reminded me of you know people like uh, it was a Jimmy Carter's ambassador who said like Khomeini was a godsend or something like that, right? Like it's just is that night it's you know it's that just naivete if you don't actually know who you're dealing with. I think we saw with China as well. Like these people are sharks, and they're not going to. You know, maybe you can get a couple of concessions here and there, but at the end of the day, they're going to pursue, as we theme discussion, what what will keep them in power. Um, and I, I just think, uh, short of change by their part, it, it seems ridiculous to assume that they would actually curtail their nuclear ambitions. And that was my that was just my feeling all along. Um, and on top of that, I also don't think that the deal was comprehensive enough in terms of being able to send inspectors around and and, and get assurances. Uh, and of course when they unfroze billions of dollars from the Iranian regime, uh, what they do, they, they then expand their operations in other places in the Middle East, right? They right. supply um, Hezbollah with rockets. They uh, interfere in Syria. They, uh, you know, obviously they have, they had interest in Iraq this entire time and been supplying Iraq with those IEDs that kill American soldiers. And so I, I just, I couldn't see that they were honest actors to begin with, but um, I'm that, and so I'm curious about your take in terms of do you think that because uh, you you have a very uh, sort of wide scale perspective on this and, and a you know, nuanced or, or a moderate perspective on it, do you think that the nuclear program in Iran is more emphasized by them now? Do you do you see a change in that? Are they more likely than prior instances to actually get this nuclear? Uh, bomb, essentially. Look, I, I mean, I can tell you that no country has invested so much in a nuclear sector uh, for so long. I mean, no country has mm -hmm. taken this long to weaponize. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, most people, and I'm not, I'm not comfortable talking about the science of the nuclear sector, because right. it's way above my head. Uh, I mean, when it comes to the where they are physically, technical mm -hmm. level, uh, as far as the nuclear program is concerned. But I think the consensus out there is if they wanted to have a weapon they could have had one by now and mm. some people that speculate they probably always <laughs> I, I have no idea no this can be true but some people speculate that you know it might have had a bomb at some point what happened so, you, to so it? you think that they could have had one already by now but from from their own standpoint they've they've uh, delayed it right so i all i can tell you is what what's out there in open mm -hmm. sources i mean the u.s That's intelligence it. community as a whole has concluded that iran gave up gave up in year 2003 the pursuit of a nuclear weapons program, right? Almost 20 years ago. That's a collective US. I don't know if that's changed. That was the last I saw, and I, I have seen no evidence that they have reactivated that. So, but that doesn't mean the nuclear program can be of a concern. I mean, a, a threshold nuclear Iran, and Iran can turn around and weaponize within a month, mm -hmm. is still a major uh, right. you know, uh, national security issue for the United States. Um, Khamenei, the supreme leader, has issued a religious decree, a fatwa, as they call it, saying that an atomic bomb 
is anti-Islamic. It's against a religion, therefore they will never have it. Trouble with this decree is few people believe it. And, you know, a fatwa in Iran might have some people who take it seriously, but the rest of the world who are not necessarily looking at these things from a prism of religious de decrees right. will say that's not enough assurance for us. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing where Iran has to do. That's where they're at right now within talks. Um, if they resume in the next few weeks back mm -hmm. in Vienna, how do you assure the world that your nuclear program will remain a civilian one? I mean, at best, that will be a, a temporary solution. Mm -hmm. I think, end of the day, Iran's nuclear program, even if it's a civilian one, will be a major concern as long as the political ideology of the Islamic Republic is what it is. Mm -hmm. It's not about the centrifuges, number of, and how much they enrich. It's about the, the ideological commitments that they have undertaken. They need to sort of revisit them. They need to reassure, not just the United States, the neighborhood, the neighbors. And it's the irony of, uh, of Iran is they want to have better relations with the neighbors. What they need to do to get that going is to reassure, to reassure. Mm -hmm. Look, it's also important to remember Iran, you know, even if you change the regime into Iran tomorrow, the issue of the Iranian nuclear program might not necessarily go away. The idea that they're going to, there's a regime change and the next uh, ruling elite will come in and turn everything off mm -hmm. or throw it away. It's it's not necessarily going to happen that way. The neighborhood matters. The Iranians have a number of countries that, you know, Russia is nuclear armed, uh, Pakistan, their neighbors nuclear armed, India not far away is nuclear armed, Israel is nuclear armed, Turkey has an ongoing nuclear program, UAE has a nuclear program, Saudi Arabia has a nuclear program, Iraq is thinking about having a nuclear program. You see where I'm going with this. So, you know, it, 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 if if you ask me, the idealist in me. What you want is a region as a whole that you know will revisit the issue of nuclear programs popping up the way they are. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the commercial logic is that you free up oil uh, by generating electricity in countries like UAE, by having a nuclear power plant, you generate electricity, you free up your oil, instead of using your oil to produce electricity, right. you sell it and you get dollars for it. So that's the commercial logic. But the point I'm trying to make is, um, if the region as a whole had enough political confidence to sit around a table and discuss these things, mm -hmm. um, it, it would just be so much better for the region. But unfortunately, that political confidence yeah. is, is absent. We're, we're a long ways away from that. And I, and I think it's also worth mentioning as well that it's not just the reason why the Iranian nuclear program um, is so frightening. It's not just I personally don't believe they'll ever actually use it. I, I couldn't imagine because, you know, their number one enemy is Israel. And then they got Saudi Arabia, uh, who's, I guess, 1A and 1B. Um, and they would just be just annihilated by by those countries and the rest of the world, right? Many, many NATO probably, right? Uh, so I don't think that would happen, but it gives them so much leverage to be able to export other terrorist operations around the world. It's like sort of walking into a dangerous area with like five bodyguards who are like six foot eight. Like, you know, like you can do a lot now, right? Um, and no one's going to mess with you and or and people aren't going right. to try to take you out because now you have you have this as uh, as leverage. But what you're saying, essentially, as a path, if Khamenei chooses to go here to use the nuclear issue to sort of, you know, protect himself against external pressure, that might just be well and, and dandy. But what it doesn't fix is the pressure from within. And Iran is no North Korea. You can't just weaponize and starve your own people. And, and be happy with the outcome. You can have a nuclear program. We can even have nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, but if it comes at the expense of decimating Iranian society, mm -hmm. then I think you will end up, those people coming from, from the streets 
and, and looking to change the politics of a place. And, you know, I guess, you know, it, it's not a threat that's lost on Khamenei, but the idea that just because you have a nuclear weapon to keep mm -hmm. your neighbors in the United States away and your own people will not say anything, I, I'm not sure if that it's going to work that way. But does it change the calculus, though, in terms of, so now that there are nuclear armed state, now, obviously, you know, the United States and the West and everyone else is going to be very hesitant to uh, right. pick a fight with them and, and, and support an uprising against them. And then on top of that, you also have people, especially in Europe uh, and let's say probably the establishment Democrat wing, maybe the some of the establishment, right, uh, who can be naturally risk adverse. Um, and now they're like, okay, well, if we do get involved in, you know, the opposition leaders in Iran who are trying to overthrow the regime. Well, now we we set the groundwork for a nuclear weapon being loose or something like that. And obviously this is the Middle East. There's terrorists, you know, all over the place. Um, and maybe they get a hold of it, right? This is kind of the concern with with Syria, not necessarily the new perspective, but like, can ISIS get one of these dirty bombs, things like that? So what, what, that may change the calculus, no? If Iran chooses to become a nuclear armed state, of course, it will change the calculus on all sorts of levels, but it doesn't necessarily mean the United States will sort of say, well, we give up then, you do as you wish in the region. And in fact, the opposite could happen, that a nuclear armed Iran mobilizes minds in Washington elsewhere to actually do, you know, double down on, on regime change from within mm -hmm. to, you know, if you can pull it off. And that's a big if. But I would say right now, regime change is not on the cards for any Western capital. The one regime changing its behavior, but a nuclear armed Iran, it, it's a big if, but it could happen. Mm -hmm. That might just well, um, uh, you know, produce, uh, what, as I said, mobilized minds to, to actually look for regime change. I don't think regime change has seriously been pursued by the United States since 1979. And, and I think the United States does have the, the capacity to at least give it a go if you wanted to go there. So far, they've tried negotiations, mm -hmm. um, but if they're forced um, out of the negotiation format and for, <laughs> forced to do something else, then you know um, they might be able to do things that they haven't done in the past, and they might deliver. Hmm. Okay, so last question. I'm going to ask you for a prediction. Uh, are you hopeful about the trajectory of Iran in, in the next um, let's say a couple of decades, let's say, do you think, I know it's hard to make these predictions. We, can ne we ne never see them coming, but uh, you know, do, do you, do you see that maybe leveraged with, so this part is new, right? Is social media, right? This has only been around for basically 10 years, um, particularly in the middle East, right? They're always, they're later in the technological uh, adaptations than we are adoptions. Um, so that's, you know, that's obviously made things easier to mobilize. Obviously, we have to uh, take into account that uh, technology will further progress, make it even harder to censor. You're going to have maybe uh, pretty soon satellite be, uh, internet being beamed down from satellites, which can make things right. easier. You have a population, like we said, largely in their thirties. So as that keeps building up, obviously after a certain point, you get too old and, and energy is lost, but like these next 10 years, a lot of these people are going to be in their prime in terms of their working years, in terms of their ability to connect with each other and, uh, and you know, build a, a movement, you know, potentially protest. What, what's, your, what's your sort of assessments, if, if, if you have one at all? 
I mean, to your point about the, the majority population that's under the age of 30, I think that's absolutely accurate. I think, you know, for them, business as usual going forward is a terrible option. And if that's the only option that they are given by the uh, Ayatollah Khamenei and the people who protect him, then uh, I suspect the, the majority under the age of 13, 30 might want to, you know, look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. to bring about change in their lives and improve their lives. I mean, they're not out there looking for a fight with Khamenei and the Revolutionary Guards, but if that's what it takes for them to improve their lives, uh, then they, they might choose to do that. I mean, to your other point about social media, let's not forget that uh, Twitter had just been around for about a year or two, maybe in 2009, when Iran had the big, if you remember, the Green uh, Movement protest, and it was called the Twitter Revolution. Mm-hmm. The first Twitter revolution happened in Iran in 2009 because Twitter was used by Iranian protesters to mobilize. Iran is an extremely well um, connected country, despite all the pressures put on on, on the society from above, they're connected on all sorts of platforms. I mean, Twitter is just one, the usual suspects, the Facebooks, the Telegrams, the YouTubes, all the rest of them. And they play a part in, in, in mobilizing. Which takes me to a broader point I want to make about the question you asked, whether I'm hopeful or not. I'm not hopeful that Ayatollah Khamenei and Revolution Guards are going to change course. I I see no evidence that they will. The only way they're going to change course is if you put the fear of God in them and say, look, it's you, you may behave differently or or we will come after you. I mean, that's the only way um, Khamenei has really responded to pressure, to the threat of being toppled. Uh, Otherwise, he doesn't seem to want to change course uh, his persona, I mean, he's a very stubborn fellow. And he usually just, you know, he, he believes he's the only one who, who has the right answers. But the hopeful part is this. This is an old ancient country. It's a civilization with at least 5,000 years of recorded history. It's a country that has a very dynamic civil society. It's a country that, as I said earlier, a constitutional revolution in 1906, before most of the modern Middle East we know even existed. The Iranians forced the king in 1906 to give him a parliament, to give him a constitution. Women played a big role in that. Religious minorities played a big role in that. This is a happening civil society. This is a lively, educated, and hungry for change civil society. And no uh, amount of arms and repression by revolutionary guards will, will bring an end to this civil society. Many of them have left the country, but look at the diaspora. Look at what they're doing in terms of mobilizing as well. Unfortunately, the diaspora could do a lot better. They're very uh, divided, uh, but they're still very much able to uh, to play a role, a positive role in sort of pushing Iran in a better direction as a country, as a society, as a neighbor. Um, and hopefully one day we'll see U.S.-Iran relations being what they used to be, good relations, a good partner for the United States in the Middle East and, and an Iranian elite that will change course and put Iranian national interest and the improving of the living standards of the people above these sort of uh, pipe dreams of chasing, you know, whatever it is Ayatollah Khamenei thinks he can do, Islamic civilization, and whatever that means. I mean, if you can't convince your, your own people about the merits of Islamic civilization, then good luck trying to sell it outside around the world. Uh, so I'm hopeful that that civil society, that angry Iranian public, will eventually prevail and and we'll see a new chapter in the history of the country of Iran that will be much better, much positive going forward. Alex Donka, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Thank you. So I'm at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. I, uh, they can look me up I'm there on Twitter. And if they're interested in my book, they can read some of it on, on places like Amazon and get in touch with me. If they have any questions, love to love to engage. So if you're interested, by all means, be in touch. Excellent. And we'll put a uh, link to, to the uh, book in our show notes. 
Please do. Great. Thanks. Good talking to you. You as well. Thank you. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.